Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, you are very welcome to The Tonight Show. Hospitals are like a war zone and it is likely people have died due to overcrowding. That is according to the Irish Medical Organisation. I will speak to their spokesperson in just a few minutes. Consider a panic alarm and vary your route home. That's the advice from the Gardaí to politicians following an attack in the last week. And a new year, new push from the government to try and fix the housing crisis. You know, nothing is off the table um, at this stage. Um, uh, any proposals that come forward uh, will be considered um, and nothing is off the table without due consideration. Join the conversation online with your comments and your questions. It's hashtag tonight VMTV. Well, the hospital overcrowding crisis has been top of the news agenda for weeks, with strong words being issued by all sides. But today, a statement by the Irish Medical Organisation could not have been more stark. It described hospitals as akin to a war zone and stated that it is likely people have died and will die because of the overcrowding. Well, let's get more on this. Dr Matthew Sadler is the chair of the consultant committee of the IMO and he joins me now via Skype. You're very welcome to the programme. I just want to bring viewers at home a little more of this three-page statement that the IMO issued today. Doctor, you talked about the very real likelihood of patients dying and dying in the future. You talk about the war zone-like conditions. You say it's critical that people understand this isn't temporary. This isn't due to a perfect storm of COVID and flu and um, RSV. You say that the real issue here is that the system is demonstrably unfit for purpose. You talk about burnout and stress and low morale among your workforce and politicians making excuses for woefully inadequate health services. You talk about dysfunction within the system. It goes on and on and on. You have in the past uh, issued statements before where there has been overcrowding in our hospitals, but none like this. Your anger is palpable. Why? All right, look, we're having some difficulty making connection there with uh, Dr Sadler, so I'm going to go to Daniel McConnell because, Daniel, this was a particularly stark statement, wasn't it? It certainly was. Um, but is it surprising, I suppose? You're the sense of deja vu we get every January, you know what I mean? I was there with Stephen Donnelly outside Beaumont Hospital last Tuesday night, you know, where, you know, the, the, the optics of us, you know, Minister Hart at work late at night, sort of, you know, seeing what's going on on the front lines. But, I mean, it's not too long ago it was an active policy of a Fianna Fáil-led government to reduce the number of hospital beds in this country. Brendan Drum, the then head of the HSE, that was his policy and move it into step-down facilities in the community. We never got the investment in the step-down facilities. And obviously with a rising, you know, with rising demographics. The demand the, in our acute know, hospitals has never been greater. Never been greater. We're about a thousand 
to, I've heard ranges of you know, figures of about 1,000 beds short to 5,000 beds short, take your pick. Like, I mean, but we are woefully uh, underprepared for this sort of uh, situation. And ultimately, the situation is only going to get worse because of those, we have an ageing population, we have far greater number of older people living longer who are far more likely to get respiratory um, illnesses at this time of year. And the, the, the worst thing that we're still talking in 2023 is, is a hospital system that shuts down at five o'clock on a Friday evening. I wasn't, not too long ago, I had to get a, a kind of a gastro scan and I'm there sitting in the Matter Hospital at five o'clock on a Friday evening. This beautiful, you know, unit with 20 beds shuts down at five o'clock or six o'clock on a Friday now, evening. Now, in fairness, consultants would say that's not the case, that there are consultants there and that there are there. discharges at the weekends. But, I, but, but again, having been brought, because my appendix almost burst, having been brought into hospital on, in an ambulance on a Saturday, being told by the ambulance guy, this is what happens in Ireland on a weekend because there's no other option. You have people going in through A&E who should not be going anywhere near A&E because it's the only option. We're now in a situation where people can't get access to their GP and if they can't even get access to another GP or out-of-hours GP care at the weekend. The only option for an awful lot of people is A&E and it's not where they need to be going. And, and we hear this phrase, war zone, war zone, and we saw footage from hospitals last week where you could see patients on top of each other. We had an account here of somebody saying, I could nearly hold hand with the person in the bed next to me. That's how close we were. Mm. Zero infection control measures. War zone conditions has a response in the last week being warlike. Well, I think what you're seeing is like, so what we saw were like 850 bed days lost between now or since the start of the year and yesterday because of obviously a number of beds having to be shut for infection control and other beds being because they didn't have enough staff and other beds were being refurbished. So you have, oh, despite all this additional capacity, um, but what you also saw were an awful lot of people uh, knowing that this crisis was coming on annual leave over that holiday period, over that Christmas period. So people weren't getting treated. Look at Waterford Hospital. Who was on annual leave? Well, senior managers, ward managers, people like people who had the decision-making capacity to triage people, move people, decide where they need to go. They were on holidays. Are you talking about consultants? Con well, consultants and senior Mainly. hospital managers. Like. Because you do get from this statement, and hopefully we'll get back to speaking to uh, Dr. Sadler, that there is a feeling here from, I think, consultants, that they are being unfairly blamed boo for Honestly, boo some of the difficulties that we've consultants seen have over the last country. few weeks. Consultants have held this country, you know, to ransom for long okay. enough because Kate. of their status. Kate, is that a fair assessment? No, and I'm not here to represent the Consultants Association, but I think that's deeply unfair um, to paint that all of the problems of the health service land at the that. hands of... I didn't of, say that. Of, I know you didn't, but I, I think it is deeply unhelpful. You cannot work, run a health service without skilled healthcare professionals. The health service has been noted for years, successive governments noted it, and five years ago, Slaunch Care was developed, not because any party decided it was a good idea. It was a collaborative approach. Everyone sat around the table. It was difficult. It was very difficult for people from Fianna Fáil to come with Fianna Gael. Sinn Féin sat on that committee, independence, um, and the far left sat on that committee. And we came up with a report, it wasn't perfect, but it laid out a roadmap for, for dealing with the problems in the service and capacity was key to that. Separation of um, elective operations from acute care and the moving of certain services into the community. Okay, so it was a plan and we hear and this time was a plan and, and it hasn't plan. happened. There was a plan. Some of it's happened, some of it hasn't happened. But also this year in particular, we do have that combination of a huge increase in respiratory illness that is putting huge pressure on a system already burdened with COVID and other illnesses and delays as a result of COVID. So yes, there, is huge there are huge pressures. I don't believe it's 
just down to the work practices of any one group, but we do have massive staff shortages and it is understandable because if you go into work in the healthcare professions, you do it because at the end of the day, you go, go home usually and you feel a bit better about yourself and you've helped people. Now people are going home and wondering, what did I miss? How many people did I not treat in the way I should? And perhaps that burnout will manifest in resignations from the system. Or so a bad I do think it's being made. And absolutely. I think that's recognised in this statement. And it will. People and have died and will die yes, because of the overcrowding. That's what happens. When care is missed, care is important. When care is missed, people die. It's simple. Um, the, 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 the sense I think I get from this statement um, and the actual quote there is politicians have made excuses for our woefully inadequate health service over the last week. Do you accept that, Mary? Well, first of all, I want to thank everybody who has worked in our health service over the last few weeks, over the holiday periods. Um, they are working in very difficult uh, conditions. I spent time last year myself in um, emergency with my dad, who was actually very ill at the time. Um, so I've seen firsthand emergency on the hospital conditions and I have other relatives as well. So I do want to thank everybody who works um, in, in our hospital service and our health service generally, because it's not just the hospitals, it is our GPs and all those working in the communities. Um, and solidarity with the patients who are looking for help and who are looking for uh, care. And we have to have a health service that is available based on a patient's need when the patients okay. need it. Okay. And, and I do think... I mean, all this, to the but back to that, have politicians unfairly been shouldering the blame onto some consultants and work practices over the last week and talking about this perfect storm of viruses, which the statement says is they are merely the proximate causes of the latest crisis yeah. in the health service. It, there is a perfect storm of viruses, flu, COVID, RSA, but there is also a absolute deficit of consultants and of other healthcare professionals. We have recruited more than 16,000 healthcare professionals, this government has. There has been a massive increase in the workforce, but we need a massive increase. And I would appeal to the IMO and the IHCA to actually approve the consultant's contract, to support it, to endorse it, to promote it. It's a contract that will allow Do you allow think that would fill those 1,000 consultant posts well, well, when well, these the are the minister, conditions within the, our the, hospitals? The, the minister has said we have currently around 3,700 consultants the minister believes we need about 6,000. That contract will provide consultants with a, with, with a contract that will give them an income of, I don't know, 270, 300,000 euros a year for a 37-hour okay. working week. But critically, and this is where it will make a difference to the provision of health services, it will allow for consultants to work on Saturdays, not okay. just emergency just consultants, here. but all of the other consultants we need in the emergency space at the time, the oncology consultants, the cardiologists, the radiologists, the respiratory, all of those consultants, we, we, we don't need them all working seven days a week, but we do need our health service to be available seven days a week. Okay. It can't shut down on, a, on a, an evening. All of this, because, sorry, and I will come to you, Martin. Uh, there's a lot being said there about consultants and consulting practices uh, and work practices within hospitals. So I want to go back to uh, Dr Sadler, who has rejoined us on the programme. Can I get your response to what you've heard so far? Well, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's the same thing we've heard many times before. I mean, consultants work seven days a week and people keep confusing urgent care which this current crisis is with elective care elective care is largely run in our hospitals on a five out of seven basis and that is true but urgent care consultants are on call every weekend they come in to treat patients when patients need to be treated they are there in emergency departments and the crisis we have at the moment is patients who have been seen by senior medical staff in emergency departments who've been deemed necessary to have an admission to a hospital 
but who are unable to get a bed in the hospital upstairs. It is not a case that senior doctors have not seen and reviewed this patient cohort who unfortunately are stuck waiting on a trolley in an emergency department. So just to be We've clear, Doctor, you're saying this is all about structural capacity. That's the difficulty, not, as we hear time and time again, that the overall system needs reform. Is, uh, but, I mean, as we said, there's many factors and the system could do with, like, you know, the system could obviously do with some reform, but the biggest problem we are facing at this moment in time is one of physical infrastructure and bed capacity. We had 11,000 and a half roughly beds in, 20, in the year 2000. We still have 11 and a half thousand beds roughly in the system and our population has gone from about 3.8 million to 5.2 or 5.3 million. At the same time, because we finally have had a country where not everybody emigrated to the same level, we actually have an aging population and our population is reaching the same demographics as most other countries where we're getting 16, 17% of the population being over 65, which is a very good thing, but that does put more strain on your health service. And if you try and pour a litre of milk into a pint glass, you'll end up with milk on the table and that is our problem. We are trying to okay. force a very large number of patients into too small a volume of bed. And that is the current crisis that we are facing. And we say current crisis, but this is a crisis that has happened every single winter that, you know, I can remember going back over the last few years. Um, I'm just conscious that there's some other statements within your statement that will alarm people, which is that there's a very real likelihood that some patients have died as a result of the delays and an even stronger likelihood that we will see further increased deaths and delayed diagnosis because people who should present at any aren't doing so. What evidence do you have to support a statement that will cause concern among the public? There was a very good research done in the NHS and it showed that if people waited in emergency departments for a bed in a ward, it led to an increased mortality. So we know that evidence as best we can from a system that is as similar to our system as we can extrapolate. And that is evidence, very good evidence study on over 100,000 cases in, taken from the NHS in England. So we know that patients, when they're in an emergency department on a trolley, do not get the optimal care that they would if they're on a ward in a hospital. And what we are calling for, and we're not looking to alarm anybody, and we know that the staff in our EDs do an unbelievable job of caring for these people. And we do hope that those statistics from the NHS don't come across to our country. But we have to be aware that when patients get suboptimal care, you are likely to get suboptimal results. And I don't think anybody heart and heart can say that somebody waiting on a trolley in an emergency department is anything else but suboptimal care. Um, we have seen a significant de decrease in the number of people on trolleys. I think it was 930-odd this day last week, down to about 530 today. What is your forecast for the next couple of weeks? I, I, look, we're not. I, who knows is the answer to that question, and I'm not going to. I'm not going to go into the forecasting business. What we know is that 500 people is too many people, and you know, while any number over 100 or whatever is probably too many at any point in time. What we know is that we possibly need a much. Sorry, we not possibly. We definitely need a better integrated hospital, primary care, community care system. We need, a we need a health service that is improving what we have on the ground and doesn't just focus on these structural changes, which is all that we've got from politicians over the last 20 years. We do need more beds. The Department of Health's own review in 2000 said by 2020, 
five, I think the number in that report was, we would need 5,000 more beds than we have now. Some estimates put it about, but we need more beds. We need more beds that follow where the people in this country are, that follows the demographics of the population. We have an okay. increasing population, which is a good thing, but that does increase the number and the amount of healthcare resources that you, are required. You talk about unprecedented levels of burnout and stress, and the INMO have also spoken about that this week, and they've said that they are going to consult their members about potential industrial reaction to respond to the current crisis. Are you considering the same? Um, we haven't officially considered that at this point in time, I have to say. But, you know, if things were to continue on down the same line, you know, all options remain open. Um, as I said, we are experiencing burnout. And our biggest concern is actually for the junior doctor population, because without junior doctors coming through the ranks, you won't be replacing consultants. We know we have a huge problem in filling vacant consultant posts. We have vacant consultant posts in this country, which 25 years ago, if I said you had a vacant consultant post, you, you know, you'd have dropped down with shock because we were a place that people loved to work in. We. I mean, I think there was something like 420 Irish doctors registered with the Australian Medical Council in 2022 in a country that graduates 700 and odd doctors okay. a year. You know, over half of our doctors each year are leaving. We are competing with a global health recruitment shortage. We are competing against countries like Australia and Canada okay. for medical expertise, and we are losing that competition. Well, will you sign the contract then? Well, that contract is going to be very individual for every individual doctor, and I certainly would have to look at my own individual circumstances, and it will depend on each 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 person whether they will or they won't. And you don't accept say, that that might moment, exacerbate the problem? What might exacerbate the problem? Not signing this contract. Um, well, I don't, I mean, I think my personal circumstances are not the most critical important in this issue. What we are doing as an organisation is we are going to be holding a survey of our members and a ballot on the contract to see what our members right. say and what their opinion of it. So I'm not going to give my own personal view until okay. I have my organisation's view behind me. All right. Look, I just want to go back to our panel here and to Martin Kenny. In fairness, as I said, their trolley numbers, they have fallen Come down, yeah. significantly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. A system-wide response, the government says, yeah. the HSE says, everybody you know, put their shoulder to the wheel this weekend. We had a significant increase in the number of people who were discharged. And you know, they, they are dealing with the situation. Yes, to some extent. But there's still an awful lot of people on trolleys. There's still an awful lot of people waiting far too long for to get a hospital bed. And I think that the, the real point here is that we have got this problem with capacity. We have so many less beds than we had 20 years ago, and yet we're in a situation where we have our population increasing and, as has been said a few minutes ago, a population that's getting older as well. And we have to deal with that. And how we deal with that is we have to provide the infrastructure. And the infrastructure has not been provided. Okay, we have Kate not put the additional the beds plan, in place. You know, the Slanted Care Plan, and I don't get into the detail of it tonight because I think it goes over the head of most <coughs> yeah. people, but there was a plan there five years ago, a agreed by all mm -hmm. parties, and it doesn't seem to have been implemented. And the people implemented, many of them actually resigned because of the obstacles they were coming across in regard to getting that plan in place. Much of those obstacles, it seemed to be coming from within management sectors in the HSE. 
But so I think we need to deal. To... But I think we need to deal with this issue. So it's and not at the just end of structural the day, capacity. Well, then, it is. It? it is structural capacity, but it's also about infrastructure. It's about making sure that we have the diagnostic tools in place in our hospitals and that they're working 24/7 rather than working until five o'clock in the evening. It's also ensuring that we have all the staff for to do all of that. It's also ensuring that we have the beds in place for many of our. I, I know Sligo University Hospital as an example. We're waiting 20 years for getting a <coughs> surgical unit built. And do all feel, the time, there's feel... promises, promises. Prom- at the end of the day, you know, we can blame the HSC, we can blame consultant, but at the end of the day, the Minister for Health is the person who's responsible Who for ensuring that they deliver. Who do you hold responsible, Daniel? You've been covering this a long time. I do. I, well, OK, 20 years ago, there was a deliberate decision by government to create the HSC and outsource responsibility for the running of the health service. In the, t- in the, in the yes. notion that, you know, if they could outsource responsibility and the blame when things go wrong. The difficulty is that politicians still get the blame for when things go wrong. They just no longer have the levers of power within their disposal. So you have Stephen Donnelly there as health minister trying to effect change in the HSC, but it's powerless to actually implement it. He's actually powerless to actually get things done. You see letters from his Secretary General, Robert Watt, to the head of the HSC, complaining that they were handed 350 million euros to try and get stuff done and no delivery. It was to deal with waiting lists. Yes, yeah, and no delivery, and no, and no results. So you're, you're kind of caught in this curious position that a minister is still being kind of getting okay. beaten over the head and getting blamed all the time, but yet can't do anything about it to change it. Okay, I just want to go to another Skype that we have this evening. It's Scott Walken, the clinical lead in infection control at the Irish College of GPs, because, Scott, one of the other stories uh, leading the news today was this surge in RSV cases in the Midwest, which again will concern people given the situation with our hospitals. What are you putting, what are you attributing that surge to? Well, every year there is a surge in winter respiratory viruses, including RSV. Interestingly, at a national level, and I'm not sure about geographical breakdowns, but certainly at a national level, the most recently published data on RSV figures uh, show that RSV is actually falling nationally, thankfully. I think the bigger ticket item is the, uh, is the big increase in influenza or flu levels. Uh, that is contributing to the enormous pressures from end to end, from general practice and community uh, settings to uh, emergency departments and hospital services. You know, that's really what's, uh, and, and I don't think it's peaked yet, actually. So influenza is, is, the, uh, is the big ticket item at the moment because those numbers are, are increasing. Uh, I suppose one of the, if there's a silver lining to this, it's that uh, influenza does have, a, or the flu does have a, a vaccine that can prevent it. Uh, so it is vaccine preventable with the uh, the, the, the over 65 uh, group of people of of the uh, in the country have access for free to flu vaccines. And of course, a really crucial one is that two to 17 year old children and young people can access the nasal needle free flu vaccine. So I, I, I mean, in, in the middle of this uh, very difficult time for the health service, I would certainly strongly encourage everybody to, to, to get all of their vaccines up to date, including COVID boosters, including influenza vaccine, childhood vaccines and pneumococcal okay. vaccines. Um, speaking of COVID, we did hear of a new variant or sub-variant uh, of Omicron called Kraken. Can you tell me what do you know about that? How concerned are you uh, about it and how uh, contagious it could potentially be? So uh, Kraken or XBB 1.5 has been detected in very small numbers uh, in in Ireland. Uh, Less than five cases have been identified. Uh, And that was in a a document published on the 4th of January by the HPSC. 
Now, in America, it has spread quite widely. Uh, I, was, I was at a meeting today uh, with the office of the chief clinical officer, and the suspicion is it's hard to know, it's hard to predict, but there are good levels of COVID vaccination. And, and Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Immunity and some natural immunity uh, within the Irish population. Uh, so it, it's probably not going to be more dangerous than previous <laughs> variants. Uh, but, I mean, it remains to be seen. OK, what is your advice to, to parents, to um, adults watching this evening who are not feeling very well but who are concerned, really genuinely concerned, about either burdening their GP, going into a GP service, or indeed going towards A&E? Well, OK, so uh, I suppose general practice and indeed emergency departments and the hospitals are scarce and valuable resource. We all know that. It's been all over the, the newspapers. So I think uh, it is important to try to uh, retain the capacity that is available for the people that need it most. Uh, so for people that have mild disease, uh, they don't necessarily need to contact a, a GP or indeed go to the emergency department at all. Uh, and there's really helpful information on a website, a HSE website called undertheweather.ie, for uh, which helps people manage mild symptoms. Uh, it also includes helpful information about what to do or what to look out for if there's a concern about the illness becoming more severe. All right. Uh, so, it, All right. Look, uh, sorry to cut across you there. I'm just very conscious of time. Thank you for joining us, uh, Dr. Scott Walken. One final issue within the health service, Kate, and it really does feel like a perfect storm sometimes, is this shortage, this medicine shortage that we've been hearing about uh, for the last uh, couple of weeks. I know as a parent of young children, when I hear there's a shortage of Calpol or Nurofen, I mean, you do genuinely feel quite panicked. Is there a sense of panic out there, do you think? Because it is, there is no 219 need. medicines, and a lot of them, the names of them will be very familiar yeah. to our viewers. There's a slight difference. There's always about 150 plus medicines that might be in short supply, but they may not be ones you'd be familiar with. What sort of emerged in the last few weeks is sort of very familiar medications, such as oral antibiotics for children and some adult formulations um, have gone into short supply and the list has increased. However, it's sort of intermittent supply issues more than constant supply issues. So we may be without something for a few days. Within the logistics of pharmacy itself, we can 
or reorganize staff or not staff as supply and get in contact with perhaps colleagues or whatever to drop over, you know, bits and bobs or the wholesaler then and um, would have an allocation based supply. So that's based on what you ordered last month. So no one has an unfair advantage. So usually we're able to supply. Isn't there too? And there are alternatives. So what we do is we supply where possible. Then if not, there's a cascade system. We contact the prescriber. That is time consuming when you're, you're busy. And also there's a confidence issue. Don't be annoying the parent who's waiting out there, who's probably queued for the doctor and the appointment and they're concerned about their sick child. So I suppose as pharmacists, we're operating at the minute in a little bit of a limbo at times where you just can't get hold of the doctor and we have to use our clinical expertise uh, to cover that gap. And we would like protection in terms of legislation there to cover us in such a situation. Um, and it does open the door to some antibiotic prescribing and other sort of conjunctivitis prescribing for the future to take, I suppose, a certain amount of burden out of the GP system. Why has but, there been resistance, do you think, to introducing that change? Well, there may not have been so much need for it before. And also, maybe pharmacists, we haven't pushed as much. We're, we're busy doing our normal jobs. And, and also, I suppose, vaccination opened up a whole new world for us as well. Most pharmacists now are pharmacies providing a service. And like that, I would like to say about the seasonal um, flu vaccine, Children's vaccines won't be available after the 23rd of January unless it's in a particularly um, unique situation. The stock goes out on that date. There is a huge amount of stock around the country and there is a sort of a belief out there that it's too late. There's no need for it. There is a need for it. 700 children have been hospitalised this year, um, this season with flu, and it's putting a burden on our system as well. So um, I would strongly advise that people go and take their children in the next few weeks. It's a very, very quick, simple procedure. And I know the HSE have put on additional clinics over the next few weeks. All right, look, we're going to leave it there. My thanks to Dr Scott Walken and to Dr Matthew Sadler. My panel is going to stay with me as up next we take a look at the safety advice that has been issued by the Gardaí to politicians, including streetwise and changing the routes that they travel. Well, politicians are well used to being front and centre of the political discourse, but now the Gardaí are giving them a list of suggestions for their public safety. They include wearing comfortable footwear to move quickly, considering panic alarms, avoiding travelling the same routes and avoiding leaving or returning home at the same time. Well, Mary Fitzpatrick, Martin Kenny, Daniel Mc. Connell and Kate O'Connell are still with me and I'm going to come to you first Martin because you do have personal experience of this there was an arson attack outside your family home and there is a second incident I know that is uh, currently before the courts but you say that has really haunted your family it's had real impact yes it has and and it has particularly for my wife because the latest incident she was at home alone when it happened and uh, you know it, it becomes a trauma and anyone who's experienced a trauma, the site of that trauma is a difficult place to be. And unfortunately, that's that's our home. That's where we live. And uh, we live in a isolated rural community. Our house is quite near the edge of the road. Um, for a whole lot of reasons, we've come to a practical decision that what we need to do is sell and move somewhere else. And and if you like, part of it is, is also about making a new beginning, if you like, and, and you know, stepping across this and, and a new start. And uh, 
we've made that decision. We're going to do that. We'll be putting the house for sale, and we'll be we'll be moving in the next couple of months. We hope, and uh, you know that that's just as it is. And I think you don't feel safe or as safe as you would have no, in your home anymore. Yeah, well, particularly late at night. Particularly for my wife. Our children are a little bit older now. Our youngest started college this year, so she's at home alone. If I'm in Dublin now, since this incident happened, I drive up and down every night, and I, I go home at night, so I, I don't stay in Dublin when the doll is sitting. Um, but I mean, you can't live your life like that. You know, yeah, you, you have to you have to live a normal life if you can at all. And uh, I think people need to be have the freedom to be fearless and to not have fear hanging over them. And many people in life, you know, it's, it's not just politicians, and I think it's important to say that. You know, bus drivers in this city of experience of people have been attacked. You know, I, I talked about the GEA and the give respect, get respect on the football jerseys, and yet we see referees being attacked on the football pitch. You know, we have we have a problem in this country that we need to recognise. Do you think it's a bit more sinister, though, towards politicians? I do, yes. I, th- I think there is there is a certain um, element of, of al- almost everyone that's in the public face is fair game, but politicians particularly. Because it's quite major, Martin, to put your family home that you've been in and for years and years that's, you know, embedded in a community that you've grown up in. It's quite a big deal to put that up for sale and say, I'm actually moving away from here to be close to a town because I feel safer. Yeah, yeah. It is. It's a a big deal to have to do that, you know. And we're fortunate that we're in a position we can do that. You know, and and I, you know... Look, I don't want to sound like a martyr or like, like you know, we, we, we're just doing what we're doing because we feel it's the right thing for us to do at this point in time due to, due to these incidents. And that's the reason for it. And it is due to these it's incidents. It's due to these incidents, yeah. Would you have considered getting out of politics at all to protect uh, your family? Well, I don't think so. And, and we've, we talked about that as well, you know, uh, briefly. But, I mean, we all as a family recognise it's a unique opportunity to be involved in politics for to create change, for to be at the cutting edge of things, for all of that. And, you know, uh, I, I don't think... While while you know we may have to move house, I, I don't think I would I would uh, give that victory to people out there who would mm. do that sort Will of thing. Will you heed the Gardaí's advice? Well, I think we all are. We're all being very sensible, and everybody in political life, and I think particularly you know there's two female, one politician and one former politician with us here this evening, and, and particularly female members of 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 the Oireachtas have had particularly bad experiences and are particularly vilified and attacked online and a lot of this comes on stuff that goes on on social media and people very angry and very abusive feed off each other and create this atmosphere of of you know that that being abusive and and being outrageous and being disrespectful is a virtue and and, and that, that needs to be called out and you know people often talk about there's a silent majority in society that majority needs to be less silent and needs to tell people, look, it's not on to behave like that. It's not on to share that kind of nonsense online. It's not on to treat people badly because then it gives sanction to others to actually physically attack. And that's what's actually happening. Um, I'm conscious that Michael Healy Ray said today that he felt this was a bit of an overreaction. Would you agree with that? No, I wouldn't. I would uh, condemn any abuse um, of any individual or uh, groups. Um, it, Will you heed the Guardi's advice? Absolutely, I, I already do, and and I and I absolutely uh, agree that it's not just politicians. While we're in the we're very obvious targets, we're in the public eye all the time. We're here tonight, you know. We'll be on the street in in, in Spar tomorrow, whatever. Uh, but. It is our bus drivers, it is um, our referees, it is the coaches, you know. I know, but um, this advice, I suppose, and I do yeah. recognise yeah. um, what they are all being subjected to too, but you don't see the Gardaí issuing advice to them to carry, you know, panic alarms and yeah. to wear comfortable shoes so they can make a quick escape. Yeah. Will you do any of those things? I wear runners all the time. 
for that reason? <laughs> not for that reason alone. No, Fitness. no, no. I don't. Well, listen, I'm not that fit either. But, you know, you know, it's um, yes, of course, I take the Gardaí advice seriously. Of course I do. Um, I deal with people all the time um, online, in person um, and uh, it's, a, it's an honour. It's a, it's a real honour and privilege. You're right, Martin. It is a real honour and a privilege for us to be involved at this level in, in politics, at a local level, at a national level, to be able to affect change, to be able to be part of that. So that's a huge privilege. It does come with a cost, a personal cost, but I guess it's one that we all know getting into it, what, what we're getting into. We take the advice. Um, we appreciate the support we get from people who support us and we appreciate the support we get from people who work with us and the Guardian and everybody else. So, yeah, it's serious, but we can't, we cannot allow that element, that negativity, um, that abuse to, uh, to pervade. We, we, we just can't allow it. Um, Kate, you did speak at the weekend. I heard you on radio and you said that, you know, when you used to go into public meetings in, in the past, uh, when you were a, a TD, that you would have had an eye on where is the exit. If there was a contentious issue, not every meeting, but particularly around the Eighth Amendment, um, I remember where there was protests and there was, you didn't know who was in rooms. It was non-ticketed events, many things, and you never knew who was there. And we, all, we always case through. I, I never had any particular negative incident. I had one at a Fine Gael, um, or the, not an Ordesh, but some sort of version of that. And it was the pe only people that should have been at the event should have had tags around their necks. And I ended up in a situation with a very big man who had a very big problem with, with me um, in a corner of a bar. And he was not supposed to be there. He was a random member of the public. And I got away from the situation and went to a hotel room and the guards were called, but I was really frightened. And I, I was in a public bar in a hotel. I was, my, I was afraid, I think, more because I remember it was about half 12 at night. And often at these things, though the public might think you're getting jarred all day. You often don't ever touch a drink at these things. And you might have a drink at midnight when everyone, everything's calmed down. And I had a couple of drinks in me and I remember thinking, oh my God, I'm in a situation now that's uncomfortable. And I had an anticipation of being protected. That was, I think, what, what struck me most. And I was very shaken after. And I remember ringing some of my colleagues um, thereafter. But, you just the, felt the day after. Yeah, but I, I mean, I'm sure you'd identify. I was, I was yep. really shaken yep. by how I ended up with somebody right in front of me with a beer bottle in his hand. And I really felt he would have had no problem using it. And not whether he got away with it mm. or not, he didn't actually care. Yeah. Um, so um, it is out there, it is present. Um, I, I think there should be a zero tolerance approach to it. If you do something to somebody, um, be it a guard on the street or the woman in the deli or the pharmacist or the GP in, when you're in a consultation or someone in public life, there really has to be, the trauma's too great for it not to be punished very seriously. Uh, Daniel, there was talk today about you know, the government funding these extra security measures. Mm. What exactly are they talking about there? And do you think there's going... Will there be moves, do you think, in that well, direction? Well, there are already discussions between the Houses of the Rockers and the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform, and essentially there is a mechanism being developed to allow these measures be funded should they be required. But we know, essentially, is that each... TD will go to their local guard station and do a risk assessment of their own locality and, and all the rest of it. But, and their own private family home. And their own private home. Uh, um, and, and, I mean, fundamentally, it comes down to this. Like, politicians pay a very... Like, I mean, I'm all for bashing politicians and <laughs> having a good lash. Um, but, like, they pay a very significant cost for being a politician in terms of the, the, 
time that they give up, the, the absences from their family. You know, it's not an easy job, right? And then to have to sit at a public meeting like Anne Rabbit and Kieran Callan did last week and have a bag of shit thrown out at them, that's just not acceptable in any civilised world. And but you'd thing, wonder how any of that advice from the Gardaí yeah. would have stopped that from happening. But, but, but what you see, one, the point I was going to make is that we in Ireland have great accessibility to our politicians. It's one of the great virtues of the Irish political system. We're very, politicians are extremely accessible. And could that be sacrificed? Could that be sacrificed? But also look what we've happened in the last year. The Garda Commissioner recommended you know, a return to Garda drivers for cabinet ministers because of the risk to them. We saw Jennifer Carroll McNeil in before the course because of a very serious you know, um, kind of uh, situation. We've had obviously the Gort incident. Like, do we have to wait for a Joe Cox incident here for people to take this issue seriously and properly? And it's not just politicians. We, I see female colleagues of mine in, in journalism get yeah. absolutely horrendous abuse Terrible. on a daily basis. It's disgusting. It shouldn't be tolerated. But because it's on its social media and we kind of laugh it off or we dis disregard it, it has become somewhat normalised. I think, to a certain degree, I don't know what a zero-tolerance approach really means mm. in terms of how do you tackle it, because I'm an advocate for free speech and I, and I would be loath to kind of limit, you know, the sort of um, the ability of people to speak their minds and tackle politicians on a legitimate basis. But there is a... But there are lines people should cross. Absolutely, of course there is. And they do cross. But there's no, there's no okay. acceptability for what happened in Gort last week. And, and for your man to come out and try and justify what he did, I think he's on to, like he's on a fool's errand in my view. All right, look, we're going to have to leave that discussion there for now, but lots more after the break as our panel is going to be taking a look at the government's housing summit today. Is it a new impetus or just same old, same old? Well, the new year has brought about a change of Taoiseach and with it a possible new impetus on the housing crisis. The government has held a summit with stakeholders earlier today. Leo Radker was there, of course, and said nothing is off the table to solve one of the pressing issues of our time. The start of a new year and the start of um, uh, my second term as Taoiseach to um, delve deep and dig deep into housing. Sounds good, Daniel McConnell. Is this not what we want? Eight years ago, Alan <coughs> Kelly did exactly the same thing. He described the housing situation as an emergency. Things have only gotten worse. We had Simon Coveney in 2017 saying that no one would be in hotels by the end of the year. People are still in hotels. The situation is no better than where it was. So what the, was this summit today? To me, this to me was... And why did we need it? To me, this was Leo Varadkar flexing his muscles, saying that he's in charge. And, you know, my colleague who was covering it for us was, was making it very clear that, that the body language was that they had Leo front and centre and poor old Dara Bryan was kind of almost the forgotten child, even though he's the housing minister, off in the wings. The only problem is, is that, like, you know, those optics aside, this is a really serious problem. And what, what's most concerning is the number of commencements, housing commencements have absolutely gone off a cliff over the last six months. And that's because of, you know, the war in Ukraine, inflation, all the rest of it. And you've obviously got developers saying that the margins between building and kind of selling is just not sufficient enough to, to make it viable for them. Believe that or believe it not, I don't know. But like <clears throat> the state's record over the last eight years in developing direct builds is atrocious. I was at, a, 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 at the opening of a development with Dara O'Brien out in Ballantyre a number of months ago. It was nine years between commencement and completion. If that's what it's going to take, and that was a 20 house unit or development, if that's what we're at, we're never going to solve this, price, or solve this crisis. Uh, Mary Fitzpatrick, just conscious there of something that Daniel said, you know, here was Leo Radker front and centre and Minister Dara O'Brien, our housing minister, uh, housing for all Dara O'Brien, Fianna Foyle standing to the side meekly. Has he been kind of pushed over and Leo is going to start housing? 
can't see Dara being pushed over um, that, that easily. But uh, look, to be fair to Leo, he's um, back in the office of Taoiseach. Um, a lot has changed since he was last um, Taoiseach in terms of housing, most uh, starkly. Um, you know, the housing, budget that, uh, the housing budget <laughs> has gone from, what, less than 500 million a year to 4 billion a year. There's 20 billion now committed to it. There's, I know, uh, but people would say not enough has changed well, or well, nowhere near enough has changed. But just want to go back. I just want to go back. Sorry, Mary. I just want to go back to the optics yeah. of this. It, why did it need a Fine Gael leader to come into the role of Taoiseach for there to be this housing summit and this idea that there's fresh impetus and now it's going to get started? Well, last year alone, there was 55,000 houses. Okay, you're, but you're not answering my question. But, but, but the optics, like, I mean, the optics of Leo Varadkar's press statements make no difference to people who are looking to buy a home, looking to rent a home. What they care about is, are homes being built? Is the capacity increasing? And last year alone, 55,000 homes were either completed or commenced. That's the highest number in a decade. Daddy's right. It has taken far too long. We are coming out of a decade of undersupply. Last year, the target was to deliver 24,600 homes. We delivered 28,000. This year, we will deliver know, more. No, no, that's that, that's really important because as Danny says, people have waited far too long. The it is important, but yeah. it's nowhere near enough. And I think in fairness that's to Leo Bradker, there was a reflection today that the targets set last year and the targets going forward mm -hmm. for Housing for All are actually possibly irrelevant because of the big increases in our population. Mm -hmm. Are you concerned as a Fianna Foiler that Fine Gael are going to try to come in here now and, and, and win this for the government? That it is Fine Gael who will sort housing because Fianna Foyle have have failed to make real inroads in the housing crisis in the last two and a half years? Fianna Fáil have made the difference. Fianna Fáil have brought the budget from less than 500 million a year to 4 billion a year. 20 billion commitment, 55,000 homes completed or commenced. The targets are going to be, that not only were they met last year, they were exceeded. They will be exceeded this year again. It is great that Leo Varadkar in his new role is now finding a road to Damascus type interest in the housing crisis that he presided over for whatever the, the 10 years that he was there. It is great to have his support but it is going to take an all-of-government approach to this. That the work that we have done so far in terms of giving local authorities the power to actually deliver, to build social homes, 10,000 a year, affordable homes, 6,000 a year. So do you think it's taken Fianna Fáil's presence in Absolutely. government to make Fine Gael realise the problem? I don't, think, I don't think anybody... Well, they realised the problem when they got the result in their last election. What it has taken Fianna Fáil's involvement in is to change the housing policy, to ensure that there is adequate, not only okay, and Mark, policy, this... but funding. That's the critical difference. We've got 20 billion committed to actually deliver the state-led social, affordable, and for the very know, first know, time ever, affordable cost rental. Uh, it's Mark, really Kenny, important for people to know this. Yeah, absolutely. And we've discussed those figures time and time again on this programme, Mary Fitzpatrick, in fairness. Martin Kenny, this is what Sinn Féin have looked for. You know, housing for all, you've said, it's not the plan, it's not, not the policy. We need to have more, more, you know, interaction from stakeholders. We need to hear from people about other solutions. Is we that not what today was? This is what you're looking for? No, what today, what today was a pretense that this is a crisis and we're going to do something about it. And it actually didn't do anything about it. There was no change of policy today at all. 
It's still the same policy as we had yesterday and the day before. Because it's not because it's not working. Go out and talk to the people. Go out and talk to the people, Mary, that can't afford a house to live in Dublin. Talk to the people who got a new home. The sixteen thousand first time buyers who bought a home. The people who can't people who can't afford to buy to buy they talk about about affordable housing. You know, affordable housing is four hundred thousand. One hundred and sixty thousand. Did you know that, Martin? You know that. How many of them were built last year? How many of them were provided? Not one. Not one. Last year, affordable house was provided by this government in this country. No, not Martin, one. This were. year, All this right. year... Okay, let Mary just respond yeah. to that this because year, I want to get before year, we go. This year, they're talking about affordable rent. Affordable rent, they're talking about €1,500 Euros a month for affordable yeah. rent. It's, it's crazy. And the government seemed to be sitting back, continuing Mary, with the okay, same policy they've had up to now. Yeah. Very quickly, but Mary... As I said, 55,000 houses were built or commenced okay. last year. It's really important. You can't have Kate. this dismissive. If you, if you did away with the housing policy that we have, you'd be doing away with £20 right. billion commitment to actually massively increase... For both parties, Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil, for Sinn Féin, this is the number one issue, isn't it? It is a number one issue, and I think there's clearly a realisation of that if there's a summit today. I think the only fresh idea, if it even is a fresh idea, I heard out today was, and maybe I heard it wrong on the news, was that there would be buying of blocks or getting builders to build on behalf of the state. I suppose, to me, my first reaction was children's hospital, you know, where there's margins are tight, Who's going to take the burden here? How is the taxpayer going to be protected? We don't have a great and record. And are, are the government mirroring like the, the, those funds that bought all, all the, the apartments? So, you know, always caution when it comes to taxpayers' money. All right, OK, we'll have to leave it there. Thanks to my panel and to you at home for watching. See you tomorrow night.